1: Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello all, welcome to part two of John Dillinger versus Matt Leach. More of my interview with Ellen Pulson, expert in all things John Dillinger. Before we get to it, another mention of a fabulous new NewsHound patron, a shout out to Julia Diamond from California, who is currently binging all of my episodes and decided to throw some help my way at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. She's a huge history buff, especially 18th century European history. Thank you so much for going that extra mile, Julia. And if you would like to help the show out, go to patreon.com slash mostnotorious. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. So on to the second part of the interview. And just a quick reminder... We had left off with Ellen explaining the Crown Point prison fiasco. So, were there interactions at all between John Dillinger and Matt Leach?
0: Well, he supposedly sent a postcard to Leach after the escape. Like, ha ha, here's my wooden gun. It was kind of playing playing cat and mouse with each other. The only interaction that Leach ever had with the Dillinger gang face to face was in Tucson, when they were locked up in their in the cells in the Pima County Jail. Leach toured the jail and was able to see the captives and um Dillinger just glared. Harry Pierpont went berserk. Uh, Harry Pierpont started screaming and shaking the bars. You know, you arrested my mother in Terre Haute. I should have killed you when I had a chance. Real, you know, real James Cagney stuff. You know, you you're the dirty rat that arrested my mother. You know, I, I should have killed you when I had the chance. So that was the uh, the time that Leech was face to face with Dillinger. Leech. Was not face to face with Dillinger in when Dillinger was in the Crown Point County Jail, they did not want Leach there, and there was a concerted effort to keep him away. The um, there were so few times that Matt Leach and Dillinger did meet each other face to face. The Tucson being one time, Crown Point he wasn't Leach was not allowed near it because Robert Estill was not going to let Leach in. I mean, Robert Estill and Leach had sparred in Tucson for possession of Dillinger, for jurisdiction over Dillinger. So what kept Leach out of Crown Point also was that the Lake County contingent, the prosecutors, the sheriff's relatives who still work there, her nephew, Lillian Holly's nephew, Carol Holly, they were aligned with the police department of East Chicago, Indiana. That is generally accepted to have been a corrupt police department. They had um, a lot of a lot to do with the fact that the Dillinger gang was hanging out in East Chicago and Dillinger was meeting up with people in East Chicago after he was paroled back er- back in spring of 1933. People like Sergeant Martin Zarkovich, Captain Maker, they were all there. They were all there in Crown Point and they were determined to keep Matt Leach away. So he never got to interact with Dillinger in Crown Point. So the the obsession that Leach had with Dillinger was more or less, today we would say virtual. It was m- imaginative. It wasn't really based on a lot of physical interaction. And the same thing with Dillinger.
1: It was a newspaper rivalry more than anything else, right? That's What drove
0: it? Yes, you're right about that, Eric. What drove it all was the newspaper publicity. Both men liked to read about themselves in the papers. Matt Leach, as I had said before, had started out as a de facto press agent for his brother, the boxer, in the late 1920s. He loved the press. He ate it up, and he had a lot of friends at that time. Tubby Tom's. Some Dillinger folks would recognize the name Tubby Toms. He was an Indianapolis news reporter. He reported everything that Leach told him. Dillinger, at the same time, also loved to read about himself in the papers. In fact, in one kind of obscure transcript that I found, or that was probably somebody sent it to me. I don't think I found it. His nickname among some of the other gangsters was newspaper. Like if Mary Kinder was on the phone and she was talking to somebody about these, her gangster friends, she didn't want to use real names because they were aware there were phone taps. So they called
1: him newspaper. So once he escapes, he goes into the final gang phase of his life where he's, um, should I say introduced to to Babyface Nelson Lester Gillis? I can't recall whether they met prior to Crown Point. W- would you mind telling us how they met and how things progressed for them through the spring and summer of of
0: nineteen thirty four? Now, Eric, you're qu- you're quite a Dillinger buff. Your your statement that you're not sure if they actually met <laughs> some very seasoned historians and researchers in the Dillinger field would say the exact same thing. So you really have quite a, an angle on the story yourself. (laughs) Thank you. There is, there is, yeah, there is, there was one FBI memo that was generated at one point that said that Babyface Nelson did go into – it was called Indiana Harbor. It was a neighborhood near East – or in East Chicago. I've been there. I've been to those neighborhoods, and um, I believe that Indiana Harbor is in East Chicago, Indiana, or neighboring. Babyface Nelson was said to have gone to Indiana Harbor in May of 1933, in the company of Homer Van Meter. This was around the time that there was a bank robbery in Grand Haven, Michigan, that Babyface Nelson was involved in. And um, the people that met in Indiana Harbor at that time were people that were involved in this Grand Haven bank robbery. He was said to have hung out in a place a bar, you know, some seedy part of town where um, a man named Shorty George was supplying them with guns. And Dillinger may have met Babyface Nelson at that time. It's, I would say it's probably 80% true that he did because it is generated in an FBI document. And they got a lot of their intelligence from Forrest Huntington, the the um, Pinkerton detective I was talking about before, who did such groundwork in finding out about the earliest associations of John Dillinger, the earliest associates. So there's a chance, maybe an 80% chance, that Dillinger did meet Babyface Nelson around May or June of 1933. The person who kept in touch with Nelson. That sounds a little bit kept in touch like, you know, high school friends or something, but who stayed in touch with him was Van Meter. And so after Dillinger escaped from Crown Point in March of 1934, time's time's moving along now, right? It's already March of 34. He didn't have a gang now. I mean, John Hamilton, who was part of that, what's called the First Dillinger Gang or the Terror Gang, wasn't dead yet, but he was the clay pigeon of the Midwest crime wave. I mean, he had gotten shot so many times. He was always being uh, convalesced, and um, he was in different places healing from various gunshot wounds. Dillinger had nobody, and when he he escaped and went into what's commonly thought of now as Nelson's gang. It certainly wasn't Dillinger's gang because he wasn't out of jail a couple of days when he participated in a bank robbery in Mason City, Iowa. And Sioux City, within a week of each other and within about two weeks of his escape, Now, he would not have been able to put together a gang and plan these these bank jobs. No, not not even Dillinger, not even the mythical bad men could pull that one off. He went through his association, his old friendship with Van Meter into Nelson's gang. Now, this was a completely different change of venue for John Dillinger. Now he'd be hanging out in St. Paul, and he'd be with St. Paul bank robbers. People like Tommy Carroll, a guy named Eddie Green, a hanger-on named Pat Riley. Some of these people were friends with the barker Corpus gang who were stationed in St. Paul. And I bet when you spoke to Paul Maccabee, you probably got heard a lot about that from him because his book was a crook's tour of St. Paul. That's his specialty. So that's basically how Dillinger got into his new gang was through Homer Van Mita. Now, there is an aside that I'll touch on. Some historians believe that Nelson paid money up front to get Dillinger out of Crown Point. We know that there was money exchanged, commonly called a bribe. We know that there was a bribe and money exchanged in um, either a saloon on Main Street in Crown Point or possibly someone else, somewhere else. Money was exchanged to make it easier for Dillinger to escape from Crown Point, to make the trustees roll over and die, to make the assistant warden roll over and die when he was walking through with the wooden gun. We know that now. We still don't know if Nelson actually funded the escape. The source of that rumor is, um, came from one of Nelson's West Coast associates named Fatso Negri. That's O'Negri claimed in a series of true detective articles that Nelson paid for the Crown Point escape and that Dillinger came in as a kind of humble um, gang member who really didn't have too much clout and was not an alpha in that situation at all. Um, some people believe it and some people don't. You know, Not everything is written in stone in, with the Dillinger story.
1: So the title of your book is "Chasing Dillinger: Police Captain Matt Leach, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Rivalry to Capture Public Enemy Number One." We haven't really talked yet about Hoover, and he was a part of all of this, of course. It was kind of a triangle, right? Not a love triangle, like I, I, I guess whatever would be the opposite of that.
0: Well, you mentioned the title. I was, Laurie and I didn't like the title that the subtitle that the publisher gave us and not to say anything against the publisher. Writers are always very grateful to find publishers and always eager to work with them. But uh, we wanted Indiana police captain, you know, writers always have their own little fantasies about how they want things to be presented. And when they put Hoover's name in the subtitle, I was a little disappointed, because I I don't like him. (laughs) I didn't want his (laughs) name in it. But, uh, and then the funny thing is, now's my chance to to do the shameless plug and say that the book won an award. It won a true crime award, independent uh, book award. Congratulations. Thank you. And when I went up to accept the award, the guy made fun of the title. He said, titles longer than the book <laughs> that was embarrassing but I, mean, I didn't even pick the title but uh, anyway that' that being said to get to what you were saying about um, the um, J Edgar Hoover his his interest in Dillinger started in March of 1934 after the Crown Point wooden gun escape. Now, that's pretty much established. FBI agents were following the story, though, from the very beginning, and they were going to the Pinkerton detective, Forrest Huntington, for his information as early as, um, you know, September, October, November of 1933, shortly after the escape. They went to Captain Matt Leach. And Leach gave them all the stuff he had. And that's evidenced by the fact that if you read, people can access these FBI documents online. If you're reading the March of 1934 FBI memos, all the memorandum, all the memoranda, it all says that Dillinger what Dillinger was doing in 1933 with the so-called white cap gang or his ultra early gang, that's all information that they got from Matt Leach's files. And after they took everything that Leach had, they shut him out. They, they decided that he was no good and Hoover would write on memos about Leach, Leach no good in large scrawl across memos. So what happened was Leach already frustrated because the Indiana police board told him he was not allowed to give any more statements to the press. And like you had brought out before, the press was his lifeline. He started kind of, what shall I say, monkey warfare with individual FBI agents, one of which was to go to Mooresville and see that the agents were in Mooresville, and he complained to his higher-ups that they were causing trouble, that they were going to get people killed, because his Leach's argument was that Indiana vigilantes and Mr. Citizen, who's on the lookout for John Dillinger, is going to see these guys, the G-men in their G-automobiles, their big somber cars with their overcoats, and think they're gangsters, and it's going to end up in bloodshed and shooting. So that was his initial complaint, and the complaint got back to Hoover. This complaint was the um, the the Rosetta Stone of everything that Leach would hold would hold against Hoover, but more importantly, everything that Hoover would hold against Leach, and Hoover started to keep a file on Leach, not a um, not an official file. But the agents were instructed to keep records on everything that every interaction that they had with Leach. And it it really mushroomed into something that became very ugly when uh, certain members of the gang were um, maybe brought down, like when the African-American fellow Herbert Youngblood was ambushed and killed. Leach was there, so was the FBI. And things turned into shouting matches and um, reducing Indiana State Police to tears because they felt disenfranchised of their power to make arrests. And um leach, in his, you know, in his defense, he always stuck up for his officers. he He might have made crucial errors that caused them, two, at least two were killed on his watch, that he has been blamed for that in certain uh, circles, certain factions. But, um, you know, he always defended his police officers. And when the FBI would stand in the way of them doing their job, this enraged Leach. it It caused him to go to the Indiana Police Board and his higher-ups, and it actually turned into quite a war where Indiana gave in to the federal government and gave in to Hoover and agreed to make it to bring in a statute that no police officer was allowed to get into any kind of an altercation with a federal agent in the state of Indiana. So that was really Leach's swan song when that was brought in. And he he was the reason for the statute in the first place because the FBI felt that he was uh, an obstructionist and they believed that they didn't need somebody like him getting in their way.
1: So there are lots of theories on who was involved in the shooting death of John Dillinger outside the Biograph Theater in Chicago. Could you run through some of the names for me? Sergeant Martin Zarkovich, members of the Dillinger squad, um, some of those guys, and the role that you believe they, they played in his death.
0: Well, Sergeant Zarkovich and the gang from East Chicago, Indiana, Uh, let's see, Conroy, uh, Stretch Conroy, Sergeant Maker, Zarkovich. There were four or five officers from East Chicago, Indiana, who were there in the company of the FBI agents. These were the police officers who were directly in the line of Accusations by Matt Leach. Matt Leach accused the East Chicago, Indiana Police Department of having murdered John Dillinger. Because you know, the popular belief for a really long time was that Dillinger was only killed by FBI agents. During the fifties and the sixties and into the nineteen late sixties, early seventies, it was believed only that the FBI was there. The reason for this is because the the presence of the East Chicago, Indiana police force was kind of written out of the history. The book, the um, the FBI story, the, the Efren Zembelis Jr. TV show, the the popular images of Dillinger's death at the biograph that were presented during the 50s only focused on FBI. Wasn't it Jimmy Stewart was the FBI agent in the movie? So they never got around to publicly decrying them until now, until our era, the era of freedom of information and, and deeper research into the Dillinger story. And now it's common knowledge, but it wasn't then. And right after Dillinger's death with O'Neill, a police officer named O'Neill got, okay, let's, let's split the reward. Anna Sage, the woman in red got half, right? 2,500 O'Neill and Zarkovich split the other 2,500. So they were in the reward. They were privy to the money and, um, after that, they were kind of very quietly written out, except that Captain Matt Leach went to the Chicago Tribune. Shortly after Dillinger's death, he went into the office of Inspector Sam Cowley, who was faded to be killed in in a few short months by Babyface Nelson. Inspector Cowley was in charge of the Chicago field office. He was brought in after J. Edgar Hoover decided he was displeased with acting agent Melvin Purvis. Okay, so Leach went in to speak to Sam Cowley. He didn't make a secret of the fact that he wanted the true story of Dillinger's death at the Biograph brought out. He felt that it was important to bring out the relationship of the East Chicago, Indiana police force to the underworld, that they were, in a sense, a crooked police department in a venue where a lot of crime flourished. And when they were there, At the killing of John Dillinger, it was because they wanted him dead. They did not want him to live and make statements or give any information about anything that they were doing behind the scenes in East Chicago. So this is what Leach had on his mind that he was going to bring this out. Now, quite honestly, if you were J. Edgar Hoover, if you were Sam Cowley, or even Melvin Purvis. Would you want this out there? But Leach had enough clout that he was able to get a pretty investigative article published in the Chicago Tribune. And it published photographs of Martin Zarkovich and photographs of the woman in red and the other lady at the biograph. Uh, Polly Hamilton together, pictures of them together. This was pretty revolutionary. The woman in red uh, in the newspapers was just the girl in red or somebody in red. They didn't want anybody to know about her, that she had this long history in Gary and East Chicago, and she was an old, old friend of Martin Zarkovich. None of this was supposed to come out. And the Chicago Trib published it in one or two very good investigative articles. But Leach, you know, he he, where did he go with that? What did he accomplish? The only thing he accomplished was that the FBI really had him in their radar. They were going to make sure that he wasn't going to go very far uh, in law enforcement by 1935, and by 1937, they were able to get him pushed out completely. They they were able to get him fired because it just kept going and going and going. With other cases, after Dillinger's death and after Babyface Nelson died and the public enemy era was more or less behind everybody, he just kept going, fighting with the FBI constantly through different cases in Indiana. He, he, he was as angry at them as they were at him.
1: That uh, Sergeant Zarkovich is, is quite an interesting character. <laughs> uh, movies, books on Dillinger almost always focus on Melvin Purvis, but Zarkovich's participation in all of this was, was so shady.
0: His, his involvement is also very hard to chronicle. There's um, a, a dearth of information, and um, I can say this with some authority because there was a killing in East Chicago, Indiana, the death of two police officers in June of 1934. That's been a trip. That that killing has been attributed to, to Dillinger and Homer Van Meter. They were two. I don't personally buy that theory. They weren't contract. The reason I say I don't personally buy it, they weren't that type of uh, criminal. They weren't contract killers. They they didn't kill in cold blood like that. So that's why I don't believe they did it. There were two police officers in East Chicago, Indiana, who uh, uh, walked in on uh, talk about the Crown Point escape and the bribe, and they wanted they wanted a piece of the action. And uh, then they were suddenly murdered on a back road in uh, East Chicago near Gary uh, one night, and all all the information surrounding their death disappeared. There's there's no autopsy report that now maybe if somebody's uncovered one, I apologize, but the last time I really focused on it. There, there was no autopsy reports. There was no documentation. There was a small, small little article, maybe a column about the obituary in the newspaper and nothing more. And this, uh, the murder of these police officers was pretty much, um, just swept under the rug. And there isn't anything in, um, the Crown Point archives or the Lake County archives that I know about, again, if somebody else has come up with something and there's going to be a book out about it, I'll be the first one to read it, but there, there's so little out there about Zarkovich. There's some information about when he went on the force. He was involved in a bootlegging scam in the early 1920s and um, still managed to keep himself in in the force, in the department. He was affiliated with Anna Sage, the woman in red. When his wife divorced him, she was uh, named as a co-respondent. So his relationship with her was more or less that he kept her out of jail. She she just constantly uh went through arrests. She went through arrests for a couple of different things, not only vice, not only vice arrests, but also perjury, things that you think would get somebody a little time in prison. And she uh, always just walked through the revolving door.
2: Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realized that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app, and follow and subscribe. So you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the
1: twist? What do you think about Anna Sage?
0: I'm a little bit in awe of Anna Sage. I think that she was probably a very skilled member of the fringe underworld. I mean, she wasn't a uh, Bonnie Parker, you know, Run around in a car and rob uh, banks and shoot and all this stuff. She wasn't that type of an underworld character, but she was obviously an astute businesswoman. She owned buildings in Chicago. She managed prostitution. She managed a bar called with the name the bucket of blood in Gary. She in in the bucket of blood, there were the type of things that flourished before legalized gambling, the card games and uh, crap games. She was able to flourish in Gary for many years as a uh, procurer of vice. And when it got hot in Gary, she moved over to East Chicago. She brought her, her business over there. She would sort of move interchangeably between Gary and East Chicago and uh so I guess my opinion of Anna Sage is that she was a sharp businesswoman and she knew how to move in underworld circles. She was not just a girlfriend, she wasn't you know, she wasn't the type who could walk into court and say please, your honor, I loved him. That was my only crime, which a lot of them tried to say, you know, but she she wasn't uh, somebody who was driven by love. You know, she had married and she had a son, and I won't say she wasn't capable of love, but that wasn't her motivation as a woman of the underworld.
1: Once Dillinger was gone... Hoover continued to clean up the remnants of the Midwest bank robbing gangs. I think it's pretty much assumed that Elvin Carpus was the last notable name captured or killed from this era. He ended up going to Alcatraz. But what happened to Matt Leach after Dillinger went down?
0: Well, what happened to Leach after Dillinger's death is that he did um, stay in his capacity as captain of the Indiana State Police through a couple of sensationalist tabloid stories in Indiana. One was called the Head in Hands murder case. That was a case that was a uh, very grisly dismemberment and the head was found in one state, the hands in another, which in typical 1930s style kicked off a big uh, uh, controversy over jurisdiction. Leach was instrumental in apprehending four suspects and through police work that was considered out of the range of due process, He saw them to trial, conviction, and execution. Now, his own police higher-ups accused him of not following due process. There was something in those days that police did called looping. It was um, a method of, of moving a suspect to different station houses, to different precincts working on getting confessions and keeping them one step ahead of their defense attorneys. And it was it was called looping. And it was a standard practice, just like, I guess, the practice of the third degree and putting the bright lights in the faces, things that that they don't do anymore. And uh, he was accused of that. And again, it seems like everybody was keeping score on him because that came back to bite him, too. And you're right when you say the last of the great public enemies was Alvin Carpus, and he was arrested and did go to Alcatraz. In fact, he had the distinction of spending the most amount of time on Alcatraz of any inmate there. So, Eric, you did your homework there. Uh, what happened, though, is that there was A rising, kind of an ascendancy of a new gang in Indiana known as the Brady Gang. And today, if you you can ask seasoned crime buffs if they've ever heard of the Brady Gang, and they'll tell you no. But the Brady Gang was certainly noteworthy in the annals of 30s desperados. They had it all. They had the interstate flight gun battles, uh, a couple of women they married in Maryland who claimed they didn't know they were gangsters, and these girls were sisters, and they were all married to these men, but nobody knew they were gangsters. They had so many elements of of a great story and also great tragedy. Uh, police officers were killed, so one of the Indiana State police officers under Matt Leach was killed. Officer Paul Minnumon. Now, Leach was outraged, as he always was, by by the death of one of his men. And he decided that the death of Paul Minnumon in Indiana gave him, Matt Leach, captain of the Indiana State Police, ultimate jurisdiction over the Brady Gang. But because the Brady Gang was an interstate mob, the FBI was involved, as were many other police agencies. And in investigating the Brady gang, you the names come up of police officers who were instrumental in the Dillinger hunt, police officers from Dayton, Ohio, Captain Stage from Chicago, It wasn't just Leach versus the FBI at that point, because there were police officers involved in the Brady gang chase all over the sections of the United States where the gang was running around. But again, Captain Leach was the type of guy that he compartmentalized everything so much. He decided that it was Brady was his and not Hoover's and, Hoover at that point and the FBI, this was 1937, they had just decided they're going to get him. They have to get this guy out. And they did. They were able to. And Matt Leach brought it on himself. So unfortunately, he made a statement to a very, not a large newspaper, an Evanston newspaper, but not like... Not to put down Evan- Evanston's a lovely town, but it, it's not the Chicago trip. You know what I mean? It wasn't the Chicago Daily News. His statement was picked up in some of the small town newspapers, but the statement was that Brady Al Brady liked to roller skate, and um, that police were searching all the roller skating rinks. You know, in those days, roller skating was a big thing. They had these big hippodrome type things, and Al Brady, killer, bank robber, jewelry thief, loved to roller skate and show off and do all sorts of moves on the uh, in the rink. So Matt Leach released this information that police were searching roller skating rings. When this got back to the FBI, they notified Indiana that Leach had transgressed the instructions that he was given not to release police secrets to the media. So with that, they started an, an action to get him fired and he was, uh, essentially given his notice a, a couple of days later and told that he had to pack up and uh, and skedaddle, that he was done.
1: And what becomes of him after that?
0: Well, after that, he insisted upon a hearing, which came across more as a kangaroo court than an actual hearing, because there was no jurisprudence There was no precedent for it. It was just him versus a couple of FBI agents who were um, in charge of keeping track of what he had been doing all these years. And coincidentally, one of the FBI agents was Harold Reinecke, who was instrumental in the interrogation of Dillinger's girlfriend, Evelyn Frechette. So it was almost like old home week all these people from the Dillinger era here in 1937, finally getting their revenge or comeuppance on him. And um, Leach came across, not very in charge of his emotions during the the hearing, which is understandable. He had just lost a, a very prestigious job. Afterwards, of course, Like anybody who gets sacked, he had to find his way. And he took a couple of jobs. Uh, He was a salesman. He got a job as a real estate agent. He was not able to find real gainful employment in government because of Hoover. And government was the only thing he really knew. He actually rejoined the army during World War II, and he was not a young man at that point, but he joined the army, and he wasn't um, sent overseas. He was kept in a local, probably an American Legion chapter type of capacity. But while he was stationed, he visited an FBI office, and he wanted to kiss and make up. He needed to make amends. And he said, you know, I want the director to know what I'm an admirer of his now. I like the job that he's doing. And when this got back to Hoover, Hoover, no way. Get him out of there. You know, his name is Mud. So it took him another 10 years. By 1954, he was able to secure a pseudo-government position in charge of a small agency that governed some sort of tobacco or alcohol. And um, that was the type of work he was doing at the time that he was killed in 1955. He struggled, but he never lost his love of his country. In spite of the fact that he was given such a hard time by the federal government, he never lost his loyalty to the United States.
1: And his death was was quite tragic.
0: His death was really sad. He had just gotten remarried. His first marriage ended in divorce and he was remarried. He he had just bought a house. And it was quite a thing in the 1950s to be able to buy a house. It wasn't something that everybody could just do. His house was in Gary. It was a a ranch house. And they were starting to furnish it. His wife was an older bride. She was 50. And uh, it was kind of a poignant second time around for both of them. His wife had never had any children. He had never had any children. And she was a a buyer for a department store. So they went to New York City together. She was going to be buying for her department store. And he was looking for somebody to help him publish a book on Dillinger. He went to a publisher. The publisher has never been adequately identified. One researcher thought it had was Bantam, which was a big one in those days. He had some notes, and he had some chapters, and he was looking for a ghostwriter. He was looking for somebody to help him write the book, and On the way home from his trip to New York City, he was hit by an oncoming vehicle that went over the median on the Pennsylvania turnpike. Horrendous accident. His car was catapulted down a 30-foot ravine. The other people in the car were killed. The other car. So the, the deaths were There were two people killed in the other car, two people wounded. He and his wife, mortally wounded. They succumbed a few hours later in a local emergency room. Newlyweds, new house, new life, but it wasn't to be.
1: Wow. So I have one final question for you. John Dillinger is in the news right now, which is always exciting for me the opportunity to make a history podcast relevant to what's happening in the present moment. What do you think about the current movement to exhume Dillinger's corpse?
0: Well, the exhumation of Dillinger's corpse is kind of out of my power. I can't affect the outcome of it because it's um, now in court. Uh, the cemetery has refused to allow the excumation. The, the f- part of the Dillinger family that does want the exhumation is appealing the decision. And there's another part of the Dillinger family who uh, does not want it done. So there's um, back and forth with the different branches of the family. So it's, I don't see it happening. My personal opinion is that I don't like it. I think they should leave leave Dillinger buried and leave him where he is.
1: And again, the reason for all of this is to prove that it is indeed the actual John Dillinger buried in his own grave. And this is all being driven by a television show.
0: Uh, t- again, I'm only quoting from what I've read. It's public uh, record. Uh, the latest thing I've read is that the t- the television show is not in the mix anymore, that they have uh, decided not to pursue it.
1: Got it. Yeah.
0: I would like to see more evidence of the allegation that it's not Dillinger. I would like to see what exactly they have as as a basis for wanting to do something so extreme as uh, exhum a body from a family plot where other where other plots are going to be probably disturbed. It seems a little frivolous to me, in light of the fact that. No evidence has been presented. I mean, I know that the, there was a book, and I, I won't mention the title of the book. Dillinger people all know the book, uh, that said that Dillinger was replaced at the Biograph by a Chicago Board of cl- Trade clerk named Jimmy Lawrence. And uh, it's, it's it was a fun book to read, and everybody's pretty – aware of what the book was trying to say but i'd like i want to see the primary evidence i don't want to hear that this is being done because of a book that was written in the 1970s that's more or less considered kind of a can't be fun read i'd like to see something a little bit more solid with all due respect to the people who want it done with all due respect, I would just like to see more evidence.
1: Please correct me if I'm wrong because I've never actually read that particular Dillinger book before. But one of the arguments is that it doesn't look like him in certain photos, right?
0: Well, the argument is that he had the plastic surgery and that it didn't look like him. But I mean, everybody has to draw their own conclusion. Uh, To me, the photos of Dillinger's body in his uh, sister's house laid out on a bier. They used to call it a bier. It it looks just like his his head shape to me. It looks like him to me. And that's why I believe that Dillinger is indeed buried in that grave. And uh, that's only my opinion. And I'm, again, with all due respect to people who disagree, or who would like to see the excubation. I'm only stating my opinion.
1: What's cool to me about the story is that it brings Dillinger back into public discourse again. The business of digging up someone's body is, of course, more than a little gruesome, and not the best way to do it, I suppose. But it's kind of neat that people are talking about him again.
0: Well, I think I agree with you that it's fun to see Dillinger's name again and for a whole new generation of young people who may not have heard of him. I would like to see a little bit more than abstracts and synopsis. It would be fun to read. Even the New York Times had such a basic recap of his life, nothing really of of any real substance. It would be nice if this really did open up a deeper examination of his life outside of the usual uh, Dillinger people who read and research and post. But I mean, among the mass market audience, it would be nice if there was a little bit more in the main media About him rather than just the usual greatest hits, the wooden gun, the bank robberies, you know, Dylan's greatest hits.
1: Right. (laughs) Little Bohemia, The Lady in Red. Little
0: Bohemia, (laughs) The Lady in Red.
1: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for spending time with me again.
0: Well, thank you.
1: Again, I have been speaking to Ellen Polson who co-authored, along with Laurie Hyde, the book Chasing Dillinger, Police Captain Matt Leach, J. Edgar Hoover, and the Rivalry to Capture Public Enemy Number 1. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a safe tomorrow.
2: Hello. My name's Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast.